Hey friends, Jonathan Rogers here. I know a lot of you love Flannery O'Connor, and I think a lot of you love writing. So you'll be glad to know that on June 4th, I'm starting a six-week online course called Writing with Flannery O'Connor. Each week, we're going to read one of O'Connor's short stories and one of her essays on writing. On Thursdays, I'll give a live lecture. There's going to be writing exercises, online discussion, and lots of opportunities to connect with other writers. Find out more at thehabit.co slash Flannery. Welcome to The Habit Podcast, conversations with writers about writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. things I love about Dr. Karen Swallow Pryor is the way she makes literature and the life of the mind feel more accessible for people who don't think of themselves as academics. That's what she's done in college classrooms, as a public intellectual, and as the author of books such as On Reading Well and Booked. Dr. Pryor taught at Liberty University for over 20 years, and she's about to start as research professor of English and Christianity and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. She's also the editor of a series of beautiful editions of literary classics from Broadman and Holman Publishers. It's always a pleasure to speak with Karen Swallow Pryor. Karen Swallow Pryor, thank you so much for being on the Habit Podcast. Um, you are the, my first repeat offender, actually. I've never had any, a guest on uh, twice, except, well, that's not true. I had Doug McKelvey came on as a sub-guest with um, Tish Harrison Warren, so... Well, I'm very honored, honored to be on once, <laughs> doubly honored to be on twice. <laughs> oh, good. Um, all right. So, uh, so you have, uh, you're putting out new editions of, I, I have Sense and Sensibility and um, Heart of Darkness. Is those the only two out? So those far? are the only two out so, so far, right? We have, we have two, three different installments with two each eventually. Okay. And that's with B&H. And what's the name of, is, does the whole series have a name? You know, that's, I keep getting asked that. I mean, we're, we're just calling it a, a guide and reflection. The series doesn't really have, that's the name that's on the cover. Um, so it's just a, a six volume series of classic works that I'm editing and introducing. And um, yeah, we need to come up with a t- catchy name for it. <laughs> yeah. What, what, uh, why do we need uh, more editions of um, Sense, of, Sense and Sensibility and Heart of Darkness and Frank, is Frankenstein on the list too? Frankenstein, Jane Eyre, uh, those will be the next two, and then most likely Tess of the D'Urbervilles and The Scarlet Letter. Um, yeah, that's a great question. Why do we need more editions of these classics? Um, you know, you can't walk into any bookstore and not see out on the display tables their own volumes, you know, the store's volumes or different publishers' volumes of the classics, whether it's a cheap paperback which are, yeah. which is fine, or you know, a, a gold a gilded page yeah. volume of, of a classic. I mean, there are, there are countless editions of these classics, um, but there are no none that I know of that 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 have all the features of this series. Number one, um, of course, being beautifully bound. Uh, they are gorgeous. Cover, <laughs> that's you know there and there are other you know there are other series out there that are beautifully bound but in terms of the introductions that i've written they are written specifically for uh christian readers um and that doesn't exist with these kinds of volumes and additionally not just christian readers but i've written the introductions in such a way that they will hopefully be helpful and instructive to returning readers who know and love these works Mm -hmm. but even more than that to first-time readers um and so 
I've, I give a lot of introductory material along with some more in-depth context. And the other thing uh, that I didn't realize until I was had already started this project that would be important to do based on some reader feedback I had is I don't include any spoilers in the introduction. Ah. You know, I teach a lot of these um, novels in my classes, and before these existed, I just would assign, you know, the Oxford World Classics Edition or Penguin or whatever. Um, And sometimes I would forget to tell my students not to read the introductions, Uh you know, because most of them are reading these for the first time. And even though what makes a classic work of literature classic is that you it can be reread and you do want to reread it. There's nothing that can replace that first time experience yeah. of reading and discovering this story. And so I want readers to who are first timers to have the delight of the story as it unfolds. And so I don't include any uh, spoilers in the introductions and the reflection questions after each section are where I kind of grapple uh, with the reader um, about things that have happened and interpreting events and images and and themes and so forth. Uh-huh. So I don't think anyone has ever done this before. So that's why all of these things. And so that's why this this series needs to be out there. Okay. Um, I was looking at the introduction to Sense and Sensibility and um, – and you, you know, I think on the first page you say, "Hey, one thing you need to know about these about Jane Austen's novels is that they're comedies." Um, and I, and and that that um, that struck me, I guess, because I um, it was just a reminder that that even sometimes an introduction can even do something as as basic as saying, "Hey, y'all, <laughs> this is um, it's okay to find this funny and." And uh, yeah, I don't think you simply meant comedy in terms of it's funny. You, you were talking about it in, in the larger sense. Um, but, even, but it is funny. <laughs> it is funny. And um, I think sometimes people approach, um, you know, the classics on the assumption that I'm supposed to take this really seriously. And uh, I'll, I'll, I just was interested in that. I was really thankful that on page one of the introduction, you said, hey, this is a comedy. <laughs> and more specifically, a satire. Yeah, you know, it's it's funny because I have encountered so many people who have been introduced to Austin earlier in life, often in high school, um, and never understood that it was a comedy. I myself had that experience. I read Pride and Prejudice for the first time in high school. Mm-hmm. Um, I was a, a, a great at English, great at reading, great at literature, loved all the novels. I did not understand that it was a comedy. I didn't get it. I thought it was the most boring book that I'd ever read. <laughs> Um, you know, and some of that probably has to do with intellectual maturity that doesn't ac- come until right. later. But I have encountered many people since then who 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 did not know that it's supposed to be funny. And 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 if you don't know it's supposed to be funny, you're missing just about everything. And it is the most yeah. boring book in the world. So all yeah. of Austin's works are comedies. Um, and you know, genre is so important. I just this semester I finished teaching a course um, called Literature of the Bible, which examines the Bible in terms of all of the genres that are represented by its 66 books and the genres within them. Genre or form makes all the difference in anything that we read um, or, or even film or other yeah. works of art. If we understand what sort of category it fits in, what, what rules it's adhering by or not, um, mm-hmm. then that makes all the difference in how to take it. And so I think that's one of the most important things we have to understand about any literary work is like, what is this? Not just what is it saying, but first, what is it? Then we can understand what it's saying. 
Mm-hmm. I feel like I spend half my time when I'm teaching Flannery O'Connor, I spend half my time convincing people that this is actually a really funny stuff. I mean, it's funny until, you know, the serial killer shows up and it's not as <laughs> funny after that, but it's still kind of funny even, even then. Um, and um, the, you know, the comedy, that vision of the world, mm. you know, that, that, um, you know, the idea that, that for all the, the sorrows and, um, and calamities of the world, ultimately those calamities don't have the, the last word. I mean, that, that, that comic vision, um, is, I mean, it's, it's central the way we, it, it is the, the Christian vision is a comic vision. You know, it, it was exactly what was it that, you know, I can remember how Chesterton puts it, but basically that, um, for, you know, uh, for the pagan, the, the world is a, is this, um, this place where you try to wring out whatever joy you can because the, the, the cosmos around it is, is bleak and meaningless and for the Christian, it's joy is, is the great secret <laughs> because, because it's, the, it's the cosmos that's joyful, and it's just and the world is comparatively sad. Um, anyway, I, I, it, I think it's, as you said, to understand, I guess even understanding what genre we live in, because it looks like we live in a tragedy right. so much of the time. No, exactly. And, um, and, and, and both can coexist with one another, but it's a matter of what is the larger external frame as sure. you were just talking about. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know, Beekner's book, um, the subtitle is the gospel is comedy tragedy and something else. Uh, telling oh, the truth. You know oh, I don't know that book. I'm going to, Oh be man. It's a great oh. book. It's so good. Um, uh, the God telling the truth, colon, the gospel as, Comedy, tragedy, and fairy tale, or I may have those three things in the wrong order, but it's a great book. And it's it's really about, as you said, um, it's about genre, and it's about the, the fact that that uh, the gospel is it's not a tragedy instead of a comedy, or you know, it, it's it's all those things, right? Right. Because life is all those things, right? Uh, I will be looking that book up. We'll we'll do it. Um, yeah, I, I it is it's really done a lot to shape my way of thinking about comedy. Um, so have you seen the new, uh, Emma movie? I did. I just, during this time of pandemic, actually, I was supposed to go see it in Los Angeles with a friend of mine on a trip and that trip got canceled. Uh, that was my, Uh my first trip that got canceled. First of many, um, speaking events. And, um, so finally, so, so my husband and I watched it when it was released on, you know, to streaming and it was, Mm -hmm. it did not disappoint. I was very delighted with it. It was, it was beautiful. Yeah. Um, and I heard somebody say that watching that movie was the first time they really understood that um, that Jane Austen is a comedy and is funny. And I really appreciated the light touch of that of that movie. Right. Right. Uh, again, you know, reminding us that, that this is this is, you know, this is comedy. And it's mm-hmm. um, yeah. So anyway, um, I uh, so thank you for the reminder that Jane Austen is is comedy. You know, and and she, her touch is so light. um, And I think that's what makes it a little bit hard because she loves her characters. Well, you know, to varying degrees, but you know, she, she delights in them. So the the satire that she uh, offers of, of all of her characters in her her world, it's not, you know, it's not um, bitter satire. It's loving satire. um, The kind that, that can come only when you've observed your object so closely 
done so well and paid so much attention to them that you mm-hmm. can actually not only see their uh, foibles and flaws, but you can see what's endearing about them as well. Yeah. She does love her characters well. Yeah, I, I, uh, that's funny because when I was reading in your introduction, when you said it's not just comedy, but it's a specific kind of comedy, satire, you know, I so associate satire with, with you know, bitterness and looking down at, at, the, at the object of your satire. And, and it really is a different way of, of um, uh, it, it goes down a lot more easily, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Jane Austen's right. kind of satire. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, in, in, uh, I wanted to read something that you had said in your introduction to Heart of Darkness, which I, I think is, um, again, it's, uh, pretty, when I think about your work and, and what you bring to, to the world, um, as a, as a writer, as a speaker, as a teacher, um, I, I uh, this sounds like the kind of thing you would say, Karen. While some readers might be tempted to see the moral and epistemological ambiguities that the text of part of darkness wrestles with as affirmation of the idea that there is no such thing as truth. More careful readers will see that the weight of these questions consists in the assumption that there is in fact moral truth, right and wrong, good and evil. Um, and I, I love that, that insight, right? I mean, we, we want um, a simplified, um, I think so, so often we want our stories to simplify the world for us and, and, um, and, get rid of moral ambiguities and and that's not what really stories are there to do right and so often we mistake especially you know as 21st century american evangelicals um mod you know really modern modern christians in the modern world um which is kind of flattened uh, in, in perspective and, and um, view of the world and uh, many things. But we, we so often, we, th- we don't even distinguish between portrayal and endorsement. Right. So, so a book or a film that is dark and wrestles with deep, dark, hard questions isn't necessarily endorsing those things, right? It is asking us to look at them and to wrestle with them. And so Heart of Darkness is notoriously a dark (laughs) book that deals with the depths of human depravity. And it's not a pleasant read, um, yet it is is, um, illuminating because it points to these things um and even though the author as i say in the introduction wasn't a believer and he and he didn't have an answer to this darkness that is at the center of all of our hearts clearly he is acknowledging that we need something outside of ourselves we need an external source of light because we don't have it uh and ultimately that's optimistic right i mean that is pointing us pointing us to the right answer Tell me more about that. You said ultimately, uh, Conrad's vision is, is is optimistic. Um, well, it's it's not his. One of the things that I talk about in the introduction is you know the he he's a little bit before uh, nihilism. The, mm-hmm. the movement, which which really despairs of having any, you know that there, there's just nothingness. That's all that there is. Um, Conrad is more existing uh, in existentialism, which is a search for meaning, um, finds it only in ourselves, but yet 
he doesn't even affirm that in the novel. He's he, so he doesn't answer the question, but he's asking the right question. And I guess mm-hmm. for me as a teacher, um, that's you know to me that is more than half of the battle. And so I see when someone is really asking the right question and wrestling with with the right things, um, I would see that as optimistic, even if that <laughs> student or that person or that author isn't quite recognizing that yet. Uh huh. How are you defining optimism in that in that case? Oh well, I guess I guess really just um, uh, in sort of a in black and white terms of like, it, is there an answer or is there not an answer? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, or maybe in 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 more current terms, um, you know, is there such a thing as truth or is there not such a thing as truth? Mm-hmm. I think that Conrad would say that there is such a thing as truth, mm-hmm. um, and it's very in his world and the vision, his vision of the world is very hard to see and find, but uh-huh. he wants it. He yeah, wants it. Yeah, yeah. We live in a world, I think right now that doesn't even want the truth. Um, Conrad wasn't quite there yet. Yeah. We want, we want what makes us feel good. Um, but that's yeah. a whole other story. <laughs> we're, we're used to the idea that we create our own reality. Right. right. Rather than understanding, trying to understand what reality is so I can align myself with it. Exactly. Um, So when you talk about um, these books that portray darkness without endorsing darkness, um, can you think of a, do you have examples of books that actually do endorse darkness? Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, The kind of book that makes me like when, when, when I read like Heart of Darkness, for instance, doesn't make me say, boy, I sure would like to go be dark. You know, mm-hmm. it makes me think, oh, I'm glad this is, you know, this darkness doesn't have a final word. Mm-hmm. Um, but what are the, what are stories? I mean, and do you have any, mm-hmm. anything on, on tap that's. Yeah, I think, I, I mean, obviously there are stories out there that I know about um, that I've chosen not to read. And I, I have pretty, you know, it takes a lot for me to not read a book. <laughs> um, and so there, you know, I'm sure that there are some out there that I'm not that familiar with. But I, I would say the first one that comes to mind that I, that I think fits this description that you've just given, that, I, that I've read and I think is, is really excellent literature, despite the fact that it is. Um, that it sees and endorses only darkness is uh, Thomas Hardy's Jude the Obscure. Hmm. Um, now I mentioned, I read that. I, yeah, Tess of the D'Urbervilles is his best known novel and it's one hmm. that I'll be including in the series. It's mm-hmm. one of my favorites. Um, Jude the Obscure is um, actually was Hardy's last novel um, that he ever wrote because the public furor was so um, prolonged and severe that he quit writing novels. His vision was so dark and despairing. Um, it's Jude the Obscure. Uh, again, it's a nineteenth century, late nineteenth century novel. I mean, so obviously, I think our our you know what we might think of as dark uh, today uh, is can be much darker than even Hardy, but. Um, in, so basically, in Jude the Obscure, um, Hardy questions the entire existence of the church, religion, Christianity, and marriage, the institution of marriage itself, um, and even um, the, you know, the optimism or hope of, of, of even human life. Um, it contains one of the darkest, saddest, most tragic um, scenes in all of literature that I've read with a, with a, a young boy's suicide. Mm. Um, and it's, it's, it's very despairing and dark. And, and 
and Hardy's whole life was uh, a rejection of Christianity, um, having grown up within a nominally Christian culture. And so uh, his works are all tragic, um, a tragic in the classical sense, because, they're, they, because the characters that he creates meet up against forces of, of nature and fate and their own, their own natures that they cannot overcome. So that's really uh, obviously tragic. Um, yet along the way, you know, one could argue that, that, that Hardy's novels, especially Jude the Obscured, does not offer the kind of catharsis um, that Aristotle would be looking for in his great works of tragedy. So... Yeah, yeah. I guess I, I guess I was. I'm, I'm trying to. I'm trying to come up with an example of a of a story that that makes me, you know, uh, what you just described. I, I haven't read that book, but it doesn't. The way you described it, it doesn't sound like I would read that book and say, "Huh, yeah, I think I might want to try you know, that kind of dark vision of life and, mm. and try and try that on for size." Um, and. I know, as you said, I know there are um, uh, there. I'm sure there are movies that 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 make a make it seem like some sort of nihilism is a, a pleasant way to live, hmm. or rank materialism, or something like that. Um, but I, I, oh yeah, to mean to make evil attractive, that kind of yeah, that, that, yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, Twilight. I don't know. Yeah. I haven't had the pleasure. <laughs> I haven't read it either, but <laughs> from what I know, I think it makes it, it probably makes a, a self-destructive kind of worldview uh, attractive to its uh-huh. readers and viewers. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. So another project you're in the middle of, not in the middle of, you're you've completed. Uh, uh, though I'm not sure the book's out yet. Is uh, an edition of um, uh, C.S. Lewis's poems, Souls in Bondage. Um, is that out yet? It's spirits and bondage. Yes, oh, spirits, spirits and bondage. And bondage. Yeah. Yes, no. Uh, it actually it is out. It it slipped out quietly in the night of our pandemic. Okay. <laughs> um, okay. This is with Lexham Press. Uh, it is uh, a re, you know another republication mm-hmm. of um, of an earlier work by Lewis's, um, and it is his first published work as a collection of poetry. Um, it is basically the work that that caused Lewis to turn to writing prose, um, <laughs> to put it bluntly. Um, yeah. But yet, I mean, so it's, it, it, of course, anyone who loves poetry or admires Lewis should certainly, uh, would certainly want to read this collection. Um, yeah. It's, 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 it, what's neat about it is seeing a young Lewis, um, you know, he was only uh 20 or so when that when this volume was published 21 um and obviously already had a great literary understanding and some Mm -hmm. talent and so forth but this is before he was a christian Mm -hmm. and so we do see him struggle in these poems with you know with some of these ideas that we've just talked about with with despair and with nihilism and Mm -hmm. with the unbelief um yet at the same time we can see in the images and the questions he's asking a number of things that are you know end up being themes throughout his works, even after becoming a Christian. That sounds so interesting. Um, I, you know, I wrote a book uh, called The World According to Narnia that came out in 2005, you know, and, and I wrote it in a little bit of a hurry. Um, and uh, there was a, um, at some point I had occasion to quote uh, one of Lewis's poems, you know, the, the one about 
the dragon sitting on the pile of, of gold. I don't know if you've ever run across that, but I, um, I quoted it or I thought I was quoting it. And, um, the editor writes back and says, where did you get these words from? I was like, oh, it's, it's Lewis's poem. Well, I had misquote, completely misquoted the poem for, for something. Like I said, I was in kind of a hurry. Um, but I, I hate to sound braggy, but I think my version was better. <laughs> that may have and, been. That may have been what you were doing there, improving a little. <laughs> yeah, um, because that, 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 I thought about that when you said that this was the <laughs> poems that, that set him on the, you know, it, that proved him he had a, had, had a, a gift for prose. Um, <laughs> but I, I would love to have a, have a look at those. Um, I, uh, well, I can probably, um, you know, arrange to have a copy oh, sent to you. So, yes. Well, thank you, yeah. <laughs> the You're perks of being a podcaster. Yes. That's right. And, yes. And, and again, this also is, um, I think I'm seeing a pattern in my life here. This this book also is a beautifully um, bound volume. Actually, look at it. So, it's just gorgeous. Oh, look at that. Gorgeous. Yes. You know, it's, it's thin. Uh-huh. Lexham is known for its beautiful, you know, its beautiful book. So, mm-hmm. Well, excellent. Um, okay, so um, the you said something before um, before we uh, started recording that that I uh, I want to hear more about, and that is you were just sort of casually mentioned that that you're um, you said I'm, you know I'm not an expert of, on Lewis and not not even that much of a fan. What does that mean? <laughs> Oh boy, I've stepped into what I think. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, no, I, 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 it's a, it's a weird thing because, um, <laughs> because I, I am a Christian and I'm an academic in the field of literature, and but my my area of expertise is you know is 18th century British literature. Uh, you know, so writers like Jonathan Swift and Alexander Pope and um, Samuel Richardson and Henry Fielding, who were all Christians, or, mm-hmm. you know, and, and devout Christians, um, yet no one reads these guys. And so <laughs> then, you know, sort of I, I, entering this sort of evangelical culture later yeah. in life, yeah. um, it's just weird because I, it, when people find out that I'm a I'm a Christian and an English professor, they will say, "Oh, I love C.S. Lewis too." <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I I don't need you know. So there's a whole big world of great writers, even Christian ones. Uh, I mean, again, C.S. Lewis is wonderful, but 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 I will often have students in my classes want to do research on Lewis or Tolkien and they're surprised to find that there isn't a lot of scholarship out there on them. And it's because, well, these are not major figures in British letters. Um, and, and it's not, you know, so there's nothing wrong with them, but it's just that they're a little bit sort of on a side path to most, you know, mm-hmm. academic um, circles in most yeah. academic circles. So um, yeah. Yeah. But a lot of Christians just don't, they don't know that there's a whole world of wonderful literature for Christians and by Christians out there beyond Lewis and Tolkien. So it does become, a, it's a little, it becomes a little pet peeve of mine and I'm, yeah. So. Well, I'm glad to give you the opportunity to air your pet peeve. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and yes, and so I and so then the, there's the fan the fandom aspect is you know I guess there are many writers that I admire and respect and read, um, but then there's this whole other level of being a fan. Even with Austin, like I don't consider myself a fan. Like I don't remember all these details about <laughs> her life and her dresses and tea. Um, you don't write fanfic. 
I don't know. And I don't dress up in, in um, Regency era gowns. <laughs> well, I, I feel like you're missing some opportunities. I probably so. Yeah. Uh, well, Karen, I always, uh, you've answered this question once before, but just in case you've, anything has changed since last year, who are the writers who make you want to write? Oh wow! You know that I I read more, and so I so that some that question can change. Um, I I have re- recently read my first novel by Willa Cather, O Pioneers. Mm-hmm. Um, and I she makes me want to write. Um, now a lot of people are Marilyn Robinson fans. I'm not yeah. as big a fan as other people, but I will say that her uh, book, her novel Housekeeping, mm-hmm. is one of the most exquisite novels i've ever read and that makes me want to write um and i you know i notice that it's often um the agrarian writers that uh appeal to me um so they're they're inspiring to me Uh uh-huh excellent um well uh karen thank you so much for being on the habit podcast today and uh, i hope things go well as you make a a career transition to um north carolina and um and thank you for the work you do. It, it, it's, it's making a difference, and it means a lot to me personally. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for the honor of having me on twice. Yes. <laughs> All right. See you soon. Bye-bye. The Rabbit Room has partnered with Lipscomb University to make this podcast possible. Lipscomb has graciously given us access to their recording studio in the Center for Entertainment and Arts building. We're so grateful for their sponsorship, their encouragement, and the good work they do in Nashville. Special shout out as well to Jess Ray for letting us use her song Too Good as part of this podcast. Visit JessRayMusic.com to hear more of her beautiful songs. The Habit membership is a library of resources for writers by me, Jonathan Rogers. More importantly, The Habit is a hub of community where like-minded writers gather to discuss their work and give each other a little more courage. Find out more at TheHabit.co. This podcast was produced by The Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. All our podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our members. To learn more about us, visit rabbitroom.com and to become a member, rabbitroom.com slash donate.